guys this morning. Before we leave Thanksgiving, I, I just, something dawned on me over Thanksgiving. You know, you are thinking about some things that you're thankful for. That kind of makes sense. And I'm thankful for so many things. One of the things I'm thankful for is you guys. I'm just thankful for the chance to serve here as your pastor. It's just one of the great joys and delights of my life. And I'm honored and just love it. Uh, so I'm thankful for that. My wife is thankful that the Crimson Tide beat Auburn in four overtimes yesterday. So everybody's thankful. Uh, everybody's got something to be thankful for uh, today. And we're going to finish up this Ten Commandments series, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time on the Tenth Commandment, uh, but I want to touch on the Ninth Commandment, which we just touched on a little bit last week. I want to just kind of finish that just for a second, and then we're going to spend some time talking about really the final step to true freedom, and that's what we're going to see in this Tenth and Final Commandment uh, today. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to Exodus chapter 20. And uh, just keep your Bible open because we're going to come back at the very end and close out this section of Scripture. But let's just start in Exodus chapter 20, looking in verse uh, 16. And this is the ninth commandment, which we just commonly uh, just sort of summarize with thou shalt not lie. It's a, it's a little bit more than that, I think, as we've seen with every one of these commandments. It says that you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. So if you remember last week as we... Um, we're looking at the Eighth Commandment, which is that we should not steal. The Ninth Commandment really builds on that as far as stealing, not stealing something from our neighbor. So anytime that I say anything disparaging or dishonest about another person, really through gossip or a social media post or whatever, what I'm really doing is I'm stealing their character. It's kind of identity. Uh, I'm becoming an identity thief in so many words. And so that's really uh, what the, the Ninth Commandment really jumps into. And then as we kind of flesh it out just a little bit more and think about that we are not to, not to lie, uh, there's a couple things that I want to say before we jump into the heart of the message uh, that really gets my attention. If we take a look at Scripture, it says that the enemy is the father of lies. And so anytime with my words I'm speaking anything that is not dishonest, I'm really speaking the enemy's native tongue. And that really gets my attention and, and it really changes really the way I think about weighing every single one of, of my words. And then, then next, here's what I think about. When I lie or when I'm dishonest, I'm usually covering something up. Isn't that true? Can we just play along just kind of like we're in a small group? When we're, when we're lying, I'm usually covering something up. It's something that I don't want someone to know about me that, that, that I've done. But as I think about the gospel, and I think about the, the greater word that the gospel speaks over me, and that's one of the things that I, I so want us to understand, that understanding the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ changes every circumstance and situations in our life. The gospel has a greater word. The gospel says, I'm covered through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm covered in Christ, then I don't feel the need to cover up with my words. And that's a, that's a helpful thing to me. And as with just about every one of the commandments, we tend to focus on the negative side of that commandment and not the positive side so that we're not to tell a, tell a lie. Of course, we understand that. And that's kind of focusing on the negative side of that. But really focusing on the positive side as well, it's a call to speak truth into every circumstance and every situation. And there's so many times throughout the course of our day when we're in conversations with folks that there's a chance to speak the truth of the gospel. There's a, there's a situation that we're in a, in a conversation with. Maybe it's just, let me just give you an example. Maybe it's just with someone you're talking about, talking with, and they're just, just kind of ranting and raving about the difficulties inside their marriage. And they say, you know what, I just, I just know God wants me to be happy because God wants me to be happy. I'm not happy. I, I 
think it's time for me to bolt. Well, there's a chance to speak the truth and say, you know what? God wants us to be holy. That's what God wants us to be. That's God's will or wish for us. And so anytime that we know the truth and we don't stand up and speak the truth in a circumstance or situation, in a sense, we're really violating the ninth commandment if that makes sense. And the ninth commandment uh, really brings so much freedom when we share truth in every area of our life. Now, let's take a look at the 10th commandment. We're going we're gonna to focus our time in the next 20 minutes or so. I want to be honest with you, or so. I said, oh, so, so I'm not, not breaking the ninth commandment. But let's look at this because the 10th commandment catches us off guard. The 10th commandment is like, I didn't see that one coming. Like, I understand the list of these others, you know, that we should have no other gods before God. We aren't to make an, an, an idol. Uh, we're to uh, not misuse the Lord's name. We're not to break the Sabbath. We're to honor our mother and father, not to commit murder, uh, adultery, stealing, lying. Yeah, I, I, I get that. And then the 10th one's like, where did this come from? Like, this, doesn't, this really doesn't seem to fit in this list. And, and God, I'm not trying to be critical because this seems like a great list, but the 10th one seems to be out of nowhere. Because when you think about the first nine commandments, they really deal with our actions, our behaviors, and things that we can see. When someone commits murder, like, people see that, right? Someone lies, sooner or later you understand that, right? If someone's dishonoring to their parents, you see that. Or, or with, with lying, we, we, we see their, their words. But this, this breaking of this 10 commandment really reveals our heart, when the scripture says that we're not to covet, you don't really see that. It really goes deeper into the desires of our heart. So that's where we're going to spend some time today. Look at verse 17, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, we're going to, we're going to just dig into that just for the next few moments a, a, a little deeper. And one of the reasons for doing that is because I think it's, it's just this final step to really true freedom in our life as we, as we work through this. And so let, let, let's look at the first point that I want to make today, which I, I, to me is, is helpful. When it comes to coveting, and, and coveting is having an unhealthy desire for what belongs to another. But the first point is, here, here's what we need, need to see. We must anticipate the 10th word. We must anticipate the 10th word. And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, let's go back to the context of when God gave these commandments to the nation of Israel. It was a group of Hebrews who had been for 400 years enslaved in Egypt. Does that make sense? They come out of slavery through the Exodus, God moving in a powerful way through these plagues, the parting of the Red Sea. And now here they are, and God is taking them into this promised land, and he's giving them the, these laws. And these laws are really going to define them, protect them, and they're also going to declare the greatness of, of their God. But here's the thing. He gives them this 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Don't covet your neighbor's house or his servants or his livestock. Think about it. Who was he giving these commandments to? A group of slaves who's just come out of slavery. They didn't have any of these things yet, right? Just the jewelry they took off of the Egyptians. And so what's the point? Here's what God is saying in a sense that as soon as you get into this land and you start having things, here's what I know is going to be true about you. You're going to begin to covet what the other person has. And I want to protect you. I want you to anticipate. This is going to be something you're going to have to deal with. Anticipate it so you're not enslaved by it. Because coveting will take you right back into the slavery that you were in before. It's a slavery in your life. And so we have to, in our lives, I would say this, we have to anticipate violating this 10th commandment because it's really, it's really a part of, of us. And now, 
here's what we say. We think about coveting. We tend to covet in, in three areas, right? And, and what is coveting? Again, it's just an unhealthy desire for something that belongs to another, an unhealthy desire for something that belongs to another. But we tend to have three boxes that we kind of violate this in the most. We, we tend to, first of all, it's stuff, right? Another person has something and we want that. So we think about stuff. We think about relationships. We think about circumstances, stuff. Like I'm walking in our neighborhood this weekend and my neighbor across the street just got a super cool new truck, Instead of parking in his garage, he's got it right out in front of his house all weekend long. I'm like, put that thing up, and I want to keep looking at that. Because whenever I see somebody who has a nicer truck than mine, then immediately I begin to think, I want that. Not only do I want that, I need that, right? I don't even enjoy mine. I can't even believe I, can, I can't, even, can't even get in this thing anymore for crying out loud, right? So we covet our neighbor's stuff. We covet relationships. Like sometimes we'll do that. We'll say, boy, I, you just look at somebody and you think, boy, I just wish I had a marriage like theirs, Right, I, 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 wish I, I wish I had a husband who understood me or a wife who kind of got me like this. I, I never will forget, there was a, years ago people who wanted to meet, meet with Amy and I, and they just said, you know, we look at your marriage, you just got, it looks like you guys just have such a great marriage. We'd just love to spend some time with you. Before they could get it out of their mouth, Amy's just laughing, right, out loud. Because, you know what, you see, we, we sort of look at that, right, and we covet relationships, our circumstances. Boy, I wish I had the job or if I had the situation that you have in life, on and on. That, that, that's where we kind of break this this commandment. But I want you to see this. This is super important. Here's why this is such a problem. This is why it's the enemy's tool in our life. Coveting keeps us consumed with what we don't have to the point that we find no satisfaction in what we do have. That's why this is such a big deal. Coveting will keep you consumed with what you don't have, stuff, relationships, circumstances, to the point that you fail to even understand and enjoy what you already have. In fact, if I can make this case, I would point to the very first sin in Scripture and see that coveting is really, in many ways, at the heart of it. Because God gave Adam and Eve a place to live called Eden, which Eden means pleasure. That's pretty good, right? everything in the world that they would want, but Adam and Eve in many ways stayed fixated on the one thing that they were called not to be involved in, right? And so coveting is like cement. Coveting keeps us just fixed in a place, and we fail to enjoy all that was out there. I think about all that Adam and Eve had there in a place called pleasure that they could have explored and enjoyed, but coveting kept them locked in on the one thing they didn't have. And we're, if we're not careful, that's what it'll do in our lives today. To be honest, maybe the two most miserable people on earth are the one who spends his or her, her whole life wishing for the life of another or it's the one who got the life that they had wished for only to realize that it's a nightmare, not the life of their dream. I think those are the two most miserable people on earth. In fact, there's a story in Scripture that is a, it's a difficult story. It's a, it's a hard story. It's a story that makes his point so well, but it's, it's, it's a, an unfamiliar story because we don't really teach it. You wouldn't teach it to third graders in Sunday school, so we didn't go over this story many times growing up. We kind of skipped over this story, uh, and it's a tough story, but there's some principles that I think we need to see. It's a story found in 2 Samuel chapter 13. You may want to go back and read it this afternoon. It's a story about two characters, a man named Amnon and a woman named Tamar. What they had in common, they were both children of King David. One was David's son, one was David's daughter. Now, they had different mothers, but Amnon 
had such uh, just an overwhelming infatuation for his sister Tamar. I mean, that just sounds weird, doesn't it? Like just super, super weird. Uh, And it just controlled him to the point that he goes to one of his friends, a, a guy named Jonadab, Never trust a dude named Jonadab. I don't know. I mean, it's bad. And Jonadab and Amnon devised this this plan that Amnon should just pretend like he's very sick. So he did. Amnon, the son of David, pretended he was very sick and he was in bed. And his father, King David, word got back to the king that his son Amnon was sick. So David goes to check on him and ask what we all ask when somebody is sick. We say, is there anything I can do for you, right? And so Amnon says, well, yes, since you ask." I love uh, the bread that my sister Tamar makes. Could you have Tamar come and, and make some bread for me? I think that might, uh, might help me. So King David orchestrates the events, and his sister Tamar comes in, and she, she bakes some bread for her brother. Amnon says he's too weak to get up and get it, so Tamar comes and hands the bread to him. When she does, her brother takes her by force and rapes his sister. And then immediately after the rape, it says about Amnon's heart, in other words, what Amnon was feeling about this event, it says, now Amnon hated her more than he loved her. It's a devastating statement. It's a horrible thing, but if if, if we can go through the arduous task of kind of looking at this story, we can pull some things out that really can help us to see more clearly about the dangers of coveting. Number one, coveting makes us sick with desire. Like this, this 10th commandment, really, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a heart thing, right? But coveting makes us sick with a desire. You see that in Amnon's life. He can't think about anything else. And, and coveting will always make us make poor choices, right? Doesn't Amnon lies? He deceives. And sometimes when we're coveting, we'll, we'll break the first nine commandments to get what we want. Does that make sense? We'll lie. We might murder, commit adultery, whatever, whatever we want, dishonor our parents in order to get what we want. We'll, we'll overextend financially. So we'll make us sick with desire. We'll make us make poor choices. And number three, if we do get, if we do get it, we will hate it more than we loved it. That's what we see in this story, and that's really the story of coveting, and that's why God wants us to be free from this. That's why this is such a big deal, but it's so hard in our life. Now, let me give you a sermon in a sentence. If you're prone to check out after about 10 minutes, I get it. It's hard for me to listen to, so let me just give you the sermon in the sentence today. Here it is. If you're not content with where you are, you will never be content with where you want to be. If you're not content right now with where you are in your current circumstance and situations, I don't know that you'll ever be content with where you want to be because contentment is an inside thing. Contentment is a work of the heart. It's understanding the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ in our life and making him our, our provision in our life. So the 10th word is a final step to true freedom. Let's look at the second thing. We must anticipate the 10th word. In other words, this is going to be an issue for us. We're going to struggle. Uh, we're going to struggle uh, in our life with, with coveting or desiring the things of another. The second thing that I think we need to, to understand, this is super, super important. The 10th word will really reveal the real you. This is why the 10th word is unexpected But as we think about the 10th word, the 10th word, it's really clear we've all violated this commandment, right? I mean, everybody has wanted something that somebody else had, 
Does that make sense? Whether that's a relationship or something financially that they have. Everybody's looked at somebody else's house and kind of wanted that. Something that they drive or an outfit or the way that they look, their body, that they're healthier, more fit, more attractive, more hair. You name it. We've all looked and wanted what somebody else had. Could somebody just, I mean, all of us are guilty here. Isn't that the point? Everybody, nobody is outside of the, the grasp of the 10th commandment. That's really going to be the point. But as we dig a little deeper in the 10th commandment, it, it, it reveals the real us. I want to show you a passage in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, we're going to put it up on the screen. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, what the Apostle Paul says. I'm so thankful. Now, if you've been in church a long time, you know, this, you know who the Apostle Paul was. But we have so many people, and, and they're just honest with me. They'll say, Pastor Brady, you mentioned these characters. You mentioned these, these folks like we know them. We should know them. I don't know who they are and, and who you're talking about. You talk about Paul like he's your uncle. Who is this guy? Well, the Apostle Paul uh, lived during the time of Jesus and, and, and a few years beyond. The Apostle Paul, maybe one of the greatest Christians of all time. The Apostle Paul, prior to coming to faith in Christ, was an Orthodox Jew who thought that he could have a relationship with God based on performing, obeying the law. Uh, and he was so adamant, he saw Jesus as a threat to that, that he was set on destroying Christianity, destroying the church. And even as he was on his way to do that, the Lord Jesus appeared to him, and he committed his life to Christ, was born again. He writes the bulk of the New Testament, but Romans is, is sort of his masterpiece, right? His understanding of the nature of God. And in Romans chapter 7, he said, verse 7, he says something super fascinating to our discussion today. That was a long way around the barn, right? <laughs> but maybe you understand, Paul's not my uncle now. <laughs> Verse 7, Paul says this, what shall we say? Is the law sinful? And to that we're like, that's weird, Paul. Like, who would think that the law is sinful? But again, Paul is addressing this argument. The, 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 the main point of Romans, the main point of what Paul is, is saying is now we are justified or made right with God through our faith in Christ, not by observing the law. He's saying we're all lawbreakers, but Jesus was the only law keeper. And because he kept the law perfectly, then through faith in him, we receive his righteousness. And to that, many said, well, if, if, if my standing with God is just all about uh, my faith in Christ and it doesn't really, the law doesn't matter anymore, right? It doesn't matter. So is the law sinful? Certainly not. Paul answers his own, own question. He says, nevertheless, in other words, I'm going to show you the importance of the law. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So the law shows me that I'm a law breaker. And now he's going to go even a little bit deeper into our conversation today on this 10th commandment. And this is so helpful. Paul says, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 7. You can, can read it this afternoon. Paul's going to say that that showed me really the deep-seated sin in my heart and my life that I never saw. In other words, Paul says, with the first nine commandments, I could look at myself and I could say, mostly I'm doing pretty good, right? God, I love you. I honor you. I'm trying to honor my parents. I, I'm trying to honor the Sabbath. I haven't murdered uh, anyone. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not lying uh, in my life on and on. I'm not committing adultery. So check, 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 check. Then he gets to the Ten Commandments with coveting. He's like, yeah, somebody said it. Whoops. Like, well, I didn't see that one coming. Like, I'm guilty of that, but... That's going on in here. I didn't, didn't realize that. I didn't realize that was wrong. And then that tenth word shows him that he's a lawbreaker. 
in need of a law keeper. And so the 10th word reveals the nature of our heart. Like if we'll let it do its work, when it says that we should not covet, but we all say, well, I have done that. What's that showing? It's showing the nature of my heart, and I can't be free from something, and I can't really experience the spiritual growth that God wants me to have until I really understand what's going on in here and what's driving all of my behavior, right? It's not just this performance on the outside that it's all about. That's what Paul thought, and then coveting rocks him and realizes, I'm guilty. I got some stuff going on here. And what, is, what does the 10th word really reveal? It reveals spiritual immaturity. And you say, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? In fact, really, Martin Luther said this the 10th word is just a restatement in maybe psychological terms of the first word. The first word is we should have no other gods before God. And the 10th word says what? We should not covet. In other words, what are we coveting? We're coveting those things that are God's, those things that we look to to provide for us and to, su to supply for us. And so when we violate the 10th word, it just realizes that, that there's some spiritual immaturity in our life. It sort of abolishes the good person myth that I'm mostly a good person. I'm not right? I'm a person who is, is broken and I have evil desires in my heart and I wouldn't have known it apart from this word. And in fact, when we covet, we're really saying, God, I don't trust you or God, I don't think you're sovereign in my life. I don't think you have done what is best for me. Does that make sense? I think about the circumstances and situation that I'm in right now, my life would be better over there. So basically what I'm doing is saying, God, I, I don't trust that you know what's best for me. Sometimes people ask me, they say, man, do you, uh, do you like being a pastor in your hometown? I love it. I think about where I grew up and where I go to work every day and what I do. I mean, uh, my life has been lived in about a th three-mile radius from this place. And I, I look out and see people here that I grew up with. One of the guys that I've known since ninth grade, his name's Don. He was here in the last service. He's in my small group. He's been one of my greatest friends since the ninth grade. And I never will forget something he said about three or four weeks ago in small group because we were talking about what it means to really honor our father and mother. And, and I, I know Donnie's story. Donnie lost both of his parents very early in his life. As a young boy, both his mom and dad passed away. And so Donnie was kind of knocked around just a little bit and, and raised by family members and and so I said, man, are you bitter? We're talking about honoring your father and mother and thinking that you spent most of your life growing up without one. Do, do you feel bitter about What are you feeling right now? And I'll never forget what he said in this, around this table in our, our group just a few weeks ago. He said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not bitter. He said, I've, I've come to realize, he said, I didn't like what happened, but I have come to realize that I wouldn't be sitting right here with you guys right now if my life had gone another way. And he said, I, I've come to be satisfied in that, that God has even used that to position me right where he wanted me to be. I thought it was a powerful statement. I'll never forget him saying that. Another guy in our group, which I asked him if I could use his name, he said, no. <laughs> Let me just tell you, if I'm around you and I hear part of your story, anything you say can and probably will be used in a sermon, so just be careful. But I'll usually ask. I'll usually ask if I can share your, share your name. He said, no, but, but here, here, here's what he said. It's very interesting. He said, I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. You understand that metaphor, right? I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. I grew up as a guy without on the wrong side of the tracks. And he said, I spent most of my childhood exceedingly bitter and really blaming God for my lot in life. 
And he says, but looking back, it was there that I met the person who God used to put me on the right side of the track. And I wouldn't have missed that for anything. And when he said, I've come to realize that God knows what he's doing and where you are right now and the circumstance and situation you're in right now. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying you're walking in full obedience. I'm not saying that. But listen, God knows what he's doing. And you don't want to spend the rest of your life wishing it away. Understand what it is right now in this moment, where you are, what is God wanting to teach you, what's the value in this? Because I think coveting really causes us to miss the majesty of the moment, what God is trying to teach us right now where we are. And I think we have such a hard time with that. And and in fact, the 10th word really reveals a self-centeredness to us because we're always wanting what another has instead of rejoicing with what another has. The 10th word reminds me of this because the 10th word, it just shows me that I violate this. There's something going on in my life that is not right. It reminds me that I'm constantly in need of God's grace. Now, can I say this to you? I'm not going to be much longer. Can you hang in here? We use God's grace and we talk about it as a means of salvation. It's by God's grace that we're saved, right? Would you agree with that? Most people in the church would agree with that. But can I just tell you something as a believer? I need God's supernatural power in my life every single day. Because I know who I am and I know what I'm capable of inside of here. So the 10th law reminds me that I'm constantly in need of God's grace. I'm constantly, the 10th law reminds me because I'm a a person who violates the 10th law. I covet. I'm constantly in need of God's grace. I'm constantly in need of God's word that just speaks a greater truth over me and cleanses my mind and my heart every single day from all the junk that I pick up out there in the world. Let's close with this. The 10th word is a final step to freedom. You got to anticipate it. You got to let the 10th word really reveal the real you. And you have to understand that the 10th word is caused by idolatry. That's why we covet. Because those things that we want have become little g gods. The 10th word is caused by idolatry, but here it is. But the 10th word, word, excuse me, is fueled by comparison. And if you don't know the cause of something, and if you don't know what fuels something, you will spend the rest of your life being controlled by that thing. Does that make sense? And I want to say this, and you may disagree with it, and you may be right. You may be right. Every generation has its own set of struggles. There are things that are unique to the human race, That's for sure, but I think every generation has a unique set of struggles. I think the greatest struggle in our generation today, greater than it's ever been perhaps, is this propensity to compare because we see everybody's life on full display right there in front of us as we just scroll through. And so I think we struggle with comparison more than ever before, and you have to understand that comparison will always fuel coveting. And if you don't cut off the fuel, you will be controlled by the sin. That makes sense? So let's, let's look at this. Comparison's really, what am I saying? Comparison is the enemy of contentment. Do you agree with that? Comparison is the enemy of contentment. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, great verse. Listen to what this verse says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Right? That's where the secret of life, to walk in godliness, to walk in obedience to the Lord and be content with where you are. That's great gain. That is a great value. That is the greatest value in life. 
Let me just tell you, the fastest way, the fastest way to kill something special, whether that's a relationship, whether it's a, a purchase, the fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. Would you agree with that? And so how do we really, how do we, how do we really make some adjustments and really attack, in many ways, the fuel of of coveting, which is comparison. Let's look at a couple things just really quickly, and then we'll close up. Number one, I think, I think it's important to avoid our comparison triggers, and we all have them. We have to limit our exposure to these desire-enhancing sources. I, I just think that's an imp- important step. I, I, I can remember when Amy and I were first married, and we, we lived uh, in between here and Nashville down in an apartment in Antioch. And so many times we'd, we would make our way, certainly during Christmas, during this time, and we'd go look at lights. Did you, did you, that's a cheap thing to do. I mean, that's why we got the Behold the Light tour here, so it's just a, a cheap night out for you guys. But we would do that. But we would go to certain neighborhoods in Nashville, and they were always kind of the upper crust neighborhoods, right? You go to look at, look at lights like in, in Belmede. You ever gone to look at lights in Belmede and come back to your apartment? Like, what a loser. So it's just, just you know, just you got to avoid those, those triggers. Social media is a trigger. Do you agree with that? Social media, can, social media can be an amazing trigger. There was a college student. She was just here in the last service. And um, she's growing spiritually. She is new to our church. She's growing spiritually. And uh, she, will, she will tell you this if you'd stop and listen to her. She said, she made some adjustments in this one area of her life several months ago. She sent me, a, she sent me an email. Um, I've just grown to love her and her fiancé now. They're just amazing to see what God's doing in their life. And she said, you know, you mentioned something in a sermon about just kind of having a fast from social media. She said, I thought that was the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. It was my first time to be at your church. It's always my church when something stupid comes out, right? It's <laughs> Pastor Nick, if it's a good one. Right, that was the stupidest thing I ever heard. She said, but I just kept thinking about it. I said, well, you know, I'll try. And she said, she said I did that. She said, that, that's just been one of the coolest things that's happened in my life. She said, I'm, I'm beginning to hear God like never before in my life. It's just fascinating. But here's one of the problems with, with, with social media and what it does. Jen Wilkins says this in her book, and she says it beautifully. She says, what makes us discontented with our condition is the absurdly exaggerated idea we have of the happiness of others. Isn't that an amazing statement? That's why we're so discontent, because it's this absurdly exaggerated idea we have of how happy somebody else because of something that they post, right? And again, we say this a lot around here. When, when, we're just, when you're comparing on social media, you just have to remember this. You're comparing your own behind-the-scenes footage with somebody else's highlight reel. Does that make sense? And that just many times, if you're not careful, it will fuel comparison. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like this. You know, you're, you're at a restaurant, and you, and you look at somebody's picture, and they're at Central Park on a buggy ride for Christmas. And you're at Sylvan Park having catfish, and you think, man, what is my lot in life, right? And so you have to be, be, be careful of that. I would also say this, and I don't want to be offensive, but it probably is an offensive statement. Be careful that you're not fueling jealousy with what you post. Sometimes we can do that. Does it make sense? I mean, we just want to put a highlight reel out there, really, and what's really behind it is, is so that other people could say, wow. I mean, you only had one quiet time last week, but you, you posted a picture of it, right? It's a cool coffee mug and your Bible open, right? And, and people are like, Wow. 
So be careful that we're not few. I'm making some adjustments in my life. I'm refusing to post a lot of the big fish that I catch. Just, I don't want to just make all you guys <laughs> jealous. It's just I'm, start, I'm stopping to do that. Here's the point. Maybe using humor just to poorly. Whenever I feel envy, if I'm not careful, I'm working for the enemy. We have to be careful. Here's the second thing. If you want to really, I think, see the fuel of covetousness begin to die out, I think you have to reverse your comparisons. And, and you might be saying, well, I thought you said don't compare. Well, if you're going to do it, why don't, you, why don't you reverse it? If you're going to insist on comparing your life to somebody else, think about this. Why don't you reverse how you compare? Here's what I mean. We, can, we tend to compare another person's morality down. In other words, we look at people morally who we think are, are way worse than us. Like, you know what, I got some stuff going on in my life, but at least I'm not doing what they're doing, right? So morally, we compare down. And then financially, we compare up. We're always comparing ourselves to people who have more than us live in a better house, make more money. So we, we compare morally down and financially up. I would just, I would just ask you, what if you just tried it this way? Why don't you just flip it? Why don't you, you compare morally up with the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Be holy as I am holy. And financially, why don't you compare down? Every single time I, I think I'm having a bad day at, at, at work or Going through a difficult time, I think about the dudes down there in, in La Represa, the little community that we serve in and have been in for years in the Dominican Republic. I've told this story hundreds of times. It's changed me. I mean, there's a group of guys that wake up every day, grab a shovel, and go down to the river to shovel sand and just hoping a dump truck comes so they can fill that thing up with sand. That's, that's work. I look at that. I'm thankful for what God's given me, right? And so if you're going to compare, just, just, just compare the other way. We say this all the time. Before, if you're a parent, before your kids leave the home, Take them on a short-term mission trip. Let them see how the rest of the world lives. And it will give them a different framework, a different framework for how they see the world. And see, we'll always compare until we figure out spiritually how we can really have contentment in our own heart. And let's take a look at that as we close. One of the ways that we can do that, and there are multiple ways that we do that, is we begin to practice praise. Because you can't be jealous and thankful at the same time. Does that make sense? Come off a of Thanksgiving weekend. Wonder if we said this. Wonder if we really lived from Thanksgiving instead of for Thanksgiving, right? We're going to talk about that with Christmas. And just had a practice of praise and thanksgiving on a daily basis because you can't be jealous and thankful at the same time. In fact, listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. This is my uncle again, if you forgot who he was. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I love this verse. I feel like we could talk for an hour about it. Some of you are like, please, no. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Can I just say something about this verse I want you to think about? Again, that, that's that principle that I can, I can be thankful in every circumstance and situation, and I, and I won't be jealous or covetous and thankful at the same time, so I have to make a choice. But do you understand what that passage says? Be thankful in all things. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. More than anything else, more than any other question that I've filled, it's this question. Hey, how do I know the will of God for me? Pastor Brady, how do I know the will of God for me? Maybe for, for you college students that are here, you think about, what's the will of God? Should I, should I marry the girl? Uh, should I take this job? Or, you know, should we buy the house? What's the will of God for me in this situation? We always think about the will of God, and we think about it out in the future. The questions we're asking about the will of God are always questions out in the future, and that makes sense. 
But if you want to know the will of God, we have to obey the word of God. And it says, this is the will of God for you. The known will of God for us that we saw in this passage in 1 Thessalonians is to, is to be thankful in all situations. And when we start obeying the known will of God, which in this particular verse is to be thankful in all situations, then God will begin to reveal, right, some of the unknown for us in our life, these decisions that are out there. But it doesn't happen in reverse, right? This is something to think about. Coveting dies. Let's close with this. Coveting really begins to die in your life when you remember what you deserve in light of what you've been given. I deserve death. I deserve separation from God. I don't deserve anything because of who I am and what I've done. But what I've been given, I've been adopted into his family. I've been completely forgiven. Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of me. You see, that begins to change. Can I ask you a question? And it may be a peculiar question, but I want you to think about it because it might press into this point a little bit. Have you ever had someone in your life who just won't forgive you? My guess is most of us have. I have. I have someone right now. Isn't it difficult and frustrating when you send the text and you make the call and you're just begging and wanting to be released from that mistake, but they will not release you, even though you know God's released you? But isn't it frustrating? I'm just asking you. I'm just being real. Isn't it frustrating when you have somebody in your life who will not forgive you? Is that a frustrating thing? Somebody can answer me. We'll get out on time if you will. Yeah. But aren't you thankful that that's not the way God deals with us as his children? The sin in our life, God's not saying too bad, too sad, you've gone too far. In fact, the, the word of God says just the opposite. The blood of Christ Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a good word? Isn't that a greater word? Well, let's close up with looking with how the Ten Commandments actually do end. Most of the time we study the Ten Commandments, we end at verse 17, and we miss the final part, verses 18 through 21. Let's read these, and then we'll be done. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet on the mountain smoking, here's the children of Israel just coming out of captivity. God speaks the Ten Commandments the first time. The mountain shakes and thunders, and the people draw back in fear. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. Look at verse 19. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen this is interesting. Listen to what they say next. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. Like we're not going through this again, Moses. Look at verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. I feel like we've lost that in our day. We've lost the awe and the reverence and the respect for the power and the majesty of our God. Look at it again. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. That's the ending of the section on the Ten Commandments. But there's a couple things that just happen in those three verses that are so powerful and so important that you don't want to miss them. What did these Hebrews know 
that perhaps we don't. Why did they shrink back in fear? Why did they say to Moses, don't let God speak to us again. You speak to us. What did they know? They knew this. First of all, they'd failed the test. Every one of those commandments, the Ten Commandments that God just gave them, they had violated them, and they had failed the test. That was an empty, hopeless feeling that they had. The second thing that they knew, and this is amazing. This is, makes me love the Word of God so much because you see Jesus in every page of Scripture. Listen, what did they, they say? We need a mediator. Moses, you speak to us, not God. They wanted a go-between. Do you see that? Man, this isn't just like a preacher trying to weave Jesus into the message. It's already there. We just need to bring it out. That's what we know. We failed the test, and we need a mediator. We need someone to go between us and the holiness of who God is because we failed the test. And what did Moses know? Moses knew he wasn't it. I mean, Moses doesn't even make it into the promised land because of his sin. Moses knew that he wasn't it, but Moses knew there was a one to come. The Lord Jesus, who would be that mediator, that go-between. This is such a powerful moment in the Scripture, and we see so many fascinating things, but don't miss this before we leave the Ten Commandments. Don't miss this. What did they know? They had failed the test, and so have you, and so have I. If you are basing your standing with God on your performance, you have failed the test. That's what the Ten Commandments show us. No one can keep these. So what do we do? We need a mediator. We need someone to go between us. We need someone to speak on our behalf. I need someone to help me. And that's why the Lord Jesus came, because I'm a lawbreaker, but the Lord Jesus was a law keeper. Do you believe that? He kept every one of them perfectly. And then his death, the death that he paid was a penalty for your sin, right? He pays your penalty and satisfies God's righteous requirement for you, this perfect mediator, so we, the lawbreaker, could have a standing with God because of our faith and trust in Jesus, the law keeper. Do you see it? So don't shrink back in fear. Yes, you have failed the test. Is that bad news? The answer is yes. But there is one who came who passed the test, and his grade can be yours through faith in him. Do you believe that? Don't miss that. Trust him. For some of you today, that's how you feel sort of like the Hebrews with the law, guilty, ashamed, afraid, backing up. And then you understand the mediator and what he did and what can be yours, and now you can take your stand. Father, thank you for this moment in time. Thank you for these 10 amazing words that draw us to you. We need a Savior. The law shows us we need a Savior because we haven't kept them. But Father, after we have received Christ as our Savior, you send us back to the law for our growth so we can walk in greater levels of freedom as we obey these truths through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to see these like we've never seen them before. And Lord, I pray before we leave Exodus chapter 20 that there'll be someone in this room that sees their circumstances and their situation for the first time by the way it really is. They have failed the test but that you passed the test. And now they're ready and willing to trust you and repent of their sin and trust Christ and Christ alone for their standing. I pray that happens today.
in Jesus' name. Amen.